All right, good evening, everybody. This morning we're going to be in, or this afternoon, this evening, whatever, Matthew, chapter 17, if you want to turn there in your Bibles, Matthew 17, and we'll pray and we'll get started. Lord, we thank you for this evening and um, being able to get together and pray and open up your word and uh, receive it, uh, letting you teach us and train us and bring, remind us, uh, I know a lot of it's reminder um, we just pray that you do whatever you want to do, as Aaron prayed already, that you would just do whatever you want to do. Bless the kids while they're singing and uh, playing and learning of you. And we pray this night is just uh, just a blessing to you that you'd be glorified in every room of this place. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, we left off with the transfiguration on the mount, and Jesus had just told his disciples, Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death, till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And of course, that's a terrible chapter break, in my opinion. 17 should start with verse 28, because Matthew, the author, the writer, understands what he meant was not actually the second coming of Jesus Christ, which is what some teach, that this section is a a mistake or some kind of a miscommunication, um, that Jesus really didn't come in the time frame that he said he was going to come in. That's what he's talking about. most of the people, when they saw Jesus, didn't understand his first coming, didn't understand that there were two at all. Um, that's why they didn't quite understand the spirit of Elijah in John the Baptist and the actual Elijah in the book of Revelation. They didn't comprehend that there were two comings of the Christ, of the Savior. One was to save us from our sin, and the second coming is for the judgment of the world. Um, and so when he says this in verse 28, assuredly I say to you, There are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. That's what they're going to witness now on the transfiguration uh, on the mount in chapter 17. Now, after six days, after he's made that statement, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. And then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. But Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise, and do not be afraid. And when they had lifted their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. That's him. In his glorified state, in his new form, um, they'll see him again that way uh, when he rises from the dead and, and has that time period before he ascends into heaven and, and all. But this is that glimpse, uh, uh, a preview, you know, a uh, 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 you get to see a, a prequel, basically, of, of what is going to happen and what he's going to look like and what it's going to be like around him. And the description is amazing. It's so much like what we read in Revelation chapter 1 of, of Jesus uh, as they see him there, as John, the, 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 the disciple, writes the book of Revelation and gets this beautiful picture of Christ, the, re- the revelation of Jesus, and they see this example uh, or this uh, description of Jesus uh, with his 
all all that's here it's the same it's it's a it's a beautiful thing now peter gets excited as he's up here on the mountain he's got three of the closest disciples with him peter gets excited and says if you wish should we make some tabernacles and just kind of stay up here he wants to stay there i don't want this to be a moment i don't want it to pass away uh, maybe we should build three tabernacles one for you one for moses and one for elijah and he doesn't even respond to that you know um, he just skips right over that and says, while he was still speaking. In other words, Peter tries, and, he, and you get his heart, and at least he added this time, um, if you wish. You know, that was nice. I'm glad he did that. Um, if it's good for everybody here, if everybody's good with it, I'd like to make some tabernacles, and we can just stay up here for a while. Well, obviously wasn't his wish. Um, the Father speaks from heaven, and... Uh, this is the second time he's done this. I don't know if you know the first time, if you remember the first time. It's in Matthew 3.17. Right away when Jesus gets baptized, um, his cousin John baptizes Jesus, and this voice from heaven says this, and suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. That's the first time he said it. He says it again here. The second time, though, he adds the word hear him. I want you to listen to him. Um, it, it should have been enough for them to state that this is my son. Then we should probably listen to everything he has to say. But he adds to it a second time here. The second time he says this, I want you to hear him. I want you to listen to what he has to say. Don't just be enamored with him or in awe of him. I want you to hear his words because it's the words that he's saying is what's going to carry us through. It's what's going to teach us and bring us life in our lives. So important. Hear him. In Revelation 1.17, just like what happened to John, as these guys all get scared to death um, of hearing this voice and seeing what they're seeing, Jesus reaches out and touches them and says, Arise, do not be afraid. Revelation 1.17 says, And when I saw him, John, I fell at his feet as dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid, I am the first and the last. It's his character. It's Jesus' character to bring peace to someone's heart. Not to bring terror, but to bring love, to bring joy, to bring friendship. You know, um, I no longer call you enemies, but I call you friends. I don't want you to be terrified of me. I don't want you to see me. And at my sight, because I'm glorious, it's, it's, it's hard, obviously, to conceal all that to the point where people aren't afraid, but... He does what he can do. He reaches down and touches them while they're in awe of him and tells them not to be afraid. He's trying to bring encouragement. He does the same for us. There is that brokenness. There's that moment of being born again where you realize my sins have separated me from God. And you step into that position in a humble place. It brings you to a low spot. But Jesus never leaves us there. He always reaches down and touches us and says, I don't want you to be afraid of me. I want you to understand what I'm saying. I want you to use me. I want you to accept the forgiveness I'm giving you, the grace, the mercy that I'm giving you. I'm not here to just have everybody tremble. That's, that's Satan's job. That's what he does. That's what he looks forward to. He wants everybody fearful and scared and trembling and wondering and worried. I don't want that. I want you to know me. I want you to... Uh, have joy unspeakable i want you to have peace like you've never had it before i want you to be set free like you've never been free you know like this he wants to bring a freedom that money can't bring he wants to bring a freedom that uh, relationships with people can't bring he wants to bring you to a place where 
you're okay with God. God's okay with you. You have this relationship. It's a beautiful thing that he tries to offer us. Now, um, when he says this, when the Father says this, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, hear him. This echoes Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, that'd be Elijah, here on the Mount of Transfiguration, and by the law, he's now spoken to us in these last days by his Son, in whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he has made the worlds. You've got all three up there. You've got Moses, who represents the law. You've got Elijah, that represents the prophets. And then you've got Jesus, the Son, who is the clearest voice we could possibly have. I read the law sometimes, and there's, some, there's moments where you get it, and there's moments where you kind of wonder, what are they getting at? The prophets were very confusing in a lot of ways. I mean, just reading through Ezekiel makes your head spin. I mean, you can kind of grasp some of it. You can piece together parts of it. But the prophet Ezekiel, it's like, oh, man, I mean, I saw this thing go up and left and right angles and making shapes and changes. And, and we, we have to guess at what he means. What is he seeing? Is he seeing a spaceship? Is he, you know, what is he seeing? A jet, some sort of hovercraft, you know, that he can't describe. But when Jesus speaks, it's very clear. It's very clear. And so the Father says, I've sent him here so that you can hear him. I, I didn't send him here for you to just be in awe and build tabernacles. I want you to hear what he's saying because I'm trying to bring you life. I don't want you to, and I think this is for everybody, and I hope you get this tonight. I don't want you to admire the life that he's living. I don't want you to admire the life that Jesus is living. I want you to have that life. That's why he came. I want you to have the life that Christ is living. We can have what Christ has. We can witness what he's doing and how he ministers and the deep love that he has for people and the people that are just naturally drawn to him. Uh, The kids aren't afraid of him. The Pharisees and the Sadducees kind of are, you know. Um, Although he's done nothing to threaten them, his presence is threatening to legalism. His presence is threatening to terrorism, basically, that they would bring. Uh, this terror that they would love. That's what the people were used to. They were used to the religious rulers bringing terror. And he came to not give that, to take that away from them so that they could have that freedom. I don't want you to be afraid. I want you to stand up, arise, and be blessed. And so Peter, you know, just kind of makes that statement, let's make some tabernacles, and God says, no, let's not. And <laughs> And moves on, and and Peter's like, okay, I get it. He doesn't argue with him. Um, But what a great moment for these guys to see. He chose these three that were the closest to witness something like that. And I I really believe there are circles like that when it comes to Christ. There just are, even in the church. There are those that want to be as close to him as possible, and they live their lives that way. And they devote their lives to that, and nothing else matters. It doesn't matter whether there's a lot in their life or whether there's nothing in their life. It's a relationship with Christ is all that matters. And that's a tight group. There's a very few amount of people in the church that want that. And then there's got the other group. You've got the rest of the 12 that aren't in this moment. And they're kind of close, but they fall asleep when they're asked to pray. And uh, they're there for the most part, but they're willing to let everybody, let's send the people away. They're, they're those kind of people. 
I love Jesus. I love that. But it's a lot of work sometimes. I just get tired and I, and they fall back into the flesh, you know. And then you get the 70. That's another group of disciples that aren't here. Um, and they're kind of uh, kind of like Jesus. I mean, he's popular. He's good. He's been good to me so far. I, I like the power that he offers. I like those things that I can gain from him. And But when he says things that are hard, like eat my flesh and drink my blood, it's kind of where I draw the line. I don't understand that stuff. And all of a sudden, instead of being an apologist in the sense that they like to explain Christ and bring people closer to Christ, they become apologetic about their faith. And they're sorry that it's like that, and I don't really understand that either. And it is kind of weird that the church seems to be so judgmental or that Christianity seems to be so you know, hard-lined. The word fundamentalist is a dirty word to them. You know, It shouldn't be that way. And then there's the masses. But they come to see if they're going to get a free piece of bread, or they come to get a free piece of fish. And the next time they see Jesus, I wonder if he's going to give them more free bread and more free fish kind of thing, and that's that group. And we have to each decide personally who you're going to be. Which one of those circles are you going to be in? That's a decision each one of us has to make. I would encourage you to be one of these three. They get to be right there, right in the midst. Now they get hit hard. When you get to the ministry in that place, when you get that close to the epicenter of the entire world wishing, wishing this man dead, Jesus Christ, when you get to that place where you're next to those feet and you're following that closely to him, you're going to get some of that collateral damage. You're going to feel some of that that blast, you know? Um, and that's why he says that. I mean, he explains it to his disciples very clearly. If, if they hated me and you're standing this close to me, and you're on my side, they're going to hate you too. You need to understand that. That's That comes with it. This world is never going to be friendly to Christianity, and we need to know that. And the closer you are to Christ, and the more you look like him and act like him, and the more fundamentalist you are, which is not a dirty word. It's absolutely essential for Christianity. And we've talked about that. Fundamentals in baseball, you can't throw them out. Fundamentals in football, you can't throw them out. Fundamentals. They're the basics. They're what you stand upon. You can build on them. You can add to them, but you need to have those fundamentals down. You know. And so when you call yourself a fundamental Christian, you, you need to be, everybody needs to be that. Basics. you got the basics down. Those are uh, non-negotiables. You know. Well, they're going to feel that. And so these three, as they're close to Jesus, are going to be some of the most persecuted as we watch this unfold. Verse 9, it's a short chapter. We'll get through it. Now, as they came down from the mountain, which is always a bummer, <laughs> they have that wonderful time with Jesus, a conference, uh, whatever. You, you come down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. So then you can write it down, then you can make it known far and wide, but until then, we need to keep this under wraps. And so his disciples asked him, saying, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And Jesus answered and said to them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah has come already. And they did not know him, but they did to him whatever they wished. Likewise, the Son of Man is also about to suffer at their hands. 
And the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist. John the Baptist is Elijah. Well, wait a minute. Now, the prophecy that they're talking about, that they've been taught their whole life, is Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. Let me read it to you. And it says this about the Messiah, written long before Jesus, long before he was born. Behold, the prophet says, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the, of the Lord. That's going to happen. Elijah will show up before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. But again, he's talking about the second coming. And so these guys are asking, I thought Elijah had to, had to come first before the Messiah. And he's like, he does, and he will. And he's trying to get them to understand this, but, and he has, actually. But that's in John the Baptist. Man, but John the Baptist got killed, right. And I'm going to get killed, too, as the Messiah. But Elijah's going to come again, and he's going to fulfill that prophecy, Malachi 4, 5. And then I'm going to come again, and I'm going to do all the second parts of what the Messiah does, which is to bring judgment. See, everybody was expecting the second part. Nobody was expecting the first part. Everybody was expecting judgment. Everybody was expecting him to wipe out Rome and set up his kingdom and sit on the throne and be in the temple, and then we're all going to be with them. And that's why everybody's trying to say, who's the greatest? Who's the greatest? Because they're, they're, they haven't got their minds wrapped around this yet. Because they think they're trying to get vice president in the kingdom of heaven. They think they're moving into the, you know, they're all bucking for the position. They're playing the worldly game of climbing the corporate ladder of Jesus's kingdom. Yeah, I'm the greatest. I'm the greatest because you guys really don't know what you're asking. Remember when the sons of Zebedee's mom shows up, <laughs> James and John, and she says, who, can, can, will you grant it to me that, that, one of my boys or my boys can sit on your right hand and your left hand in your kingdom. Would that be okay with you? She's asking, can you give my boys a promotion? And he looked at me and goes, you, you really don't know what you're asking. Because in Jesus' mind, he's picking, he's seeing the cross, right? So are you asking me if he can be on my right and he can be on my left hand at the cross? I don't think you want that, ma'am. I don't think you understand what you're asking. Nobody understood it. So it's not being cryptic. He's not being cryptic. He's not trying to conceal anything. He's trying to explain to them, look, yes, Elijah does come. I, I mean, it's how do I explain this to you? Malachi 4.3 is going to happen. And in a sense, it kind of has happened because John the Baptist is in the spirit of Elijah, and he went before me and made straight the way so that I can come and tell people that they can come into my kingdom. I, I kind of wish he would have stepped in, and I kind of wonder if he didn't want to do this. Look, if I didn't come the first time, there'd be nobody in my kingdom. There'd be nobody there. If I came like you guys expect me to do, coming here I come to judge everybody, none of y'all be here. You'd all be toast. So I have to come the first time to make sure that I even have citizens to rule over, because nobody's going. It'd be me, the Father, and the Holy Spirit again. And none of you would make it. So he's trying to explain it to him. Look, no, he did come, and the spirit of, or spirit of Elijah came in John, and they did to him, and they're going to do the same thing to me, and he's warning them. Remember how he said that several times? I, went, I told him many times that I'm going to have to suffer. I told him many times I'm going to have to die. None of them heard it. Every time they heard him say that, they're all like, just like Peter, maybe only in their minds, far be it from you, Lord. 
That's not going to happen. Denial. Just flat-out denial. That's not going to happen. No, I'm the creator of the universe. I'm pretty sure it's going to happen, you know. Because they didn't hear him, right after he said hear him, they miss it, and they're terrified, and they're scared. So when we sit here tonight on a Wednesday night at Calvary Chapel, and those of you listening um, and watching online, and we just read here tonight, as you've come maybe for encouragement, you've come to hear something from the Lord, you've got your prayer requests out, and hopefully tonight, Wednesday night, God, through his word, is going to speak to my heart by his Holy Spirit and answer all those questions I had for him this week. Throw all those things away for a minute. Did you hear what he had to say to you just now from his word? That if you're going to be a strong Christian in that inner circle with Christ, you're going to suffer a lot of persecution. Because a lot of people are listening tonight, even online and hearing that and saying, "Mm -hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, denial, denial. What about my job? What about my promotion? What about... What about my family? What about my wife? What about my sickness? What about my... Yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll deal with all that too. But did you hear what he had to say tonight? That those who want to be close to me are going to suffer persecution from this world. Hear him. And I say that because these guys don't hear him and they're baffled by what happens to them next and they didn't have to be. They could have known. They could have understood. They could have been prepared more. They could have actually had joy through it instead of terror through it, if they just heard him. I thought, I thought Elijah was going to come first. He did. Oh, oh. In Matthew chapter 11, verses 13 through 15, he says specifically, that was just a few chapters ago, six chapters ago, for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, And if you are willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Six chapters ago, he already told these guys about Elijah and who he was. Six chapters later, they're asking him, I thought Elijah was supposed to come. Can you imagine being that teacher? I don't know if you've ever tried to teach people anything, or a new employee even. And you look at him and say, look, two plus two is four. Got it. Got it. Two plus two is four. Now, what happens if I run into two apples and two apples and I have to add them together? What will that be? How do I do that? It's four. Got it. Okay. But so two Brussels sprouts and two Brussels sprouts. What do I do when I bring those together? It's four. I'm convinced his whole ministry was like that. For three and a half years, he's looking at these 12 guys going, I'm going to die but I'm going to rise from the dead. Okay. Can I sit at your right hand or your left hand? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Someday we'll work that out. It's up to my father to say who does that, but I'm going to die and I'm going to rise again. Got it. That's got to hurt. But anyway, about those fish, they said we're supposed to pay the test. I mean, it's, I don't want to be that person 2,000 years later as I read God's word and have him speak to me the most important things I can hear and me discount what he's trying to tell me because I'm waiting for my answer. I'm waiting for him to answer my questions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Persecution, hard times, rough. Okay. But what about what I asked you? 
Oh, we got to hear him. I got to hear him. I got to come to my quiet time. I've got to come to God's word blank. Just blanked out and ready for him to speak to me. Because he's going to tell me exactly what I need to know today for this week. And I think I know what I need to know, but he's going to tell me exactly what I need to know for this week. And I better be listening or I'm going to be surprised. And I'm going to think back like these guys do. Oh, I remember my quiet time on Monday. He told me it was going to be hard. I didn't, I really didn't hear him. All these guys are going to say, he told us he was going to die and rise from the dead, but we really didn't pay attention. (laughs) We don't need to be that way. We can hear him. Okay, so they come down from the mountain. Here comes Satan, verse 14. And when they had come to the multitude, a man came to him, kneeling down to him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and suffers severely, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. So I brought him to your disciples, but they could not cure him. Now, the father is assuming he's an epileptic, but he isn't. He's made an assumption that he's got a medical condition, but he doesn't. This boy is demon-possessed. And to answer all the questions that come from the world, no, Jesus isn't saying that all epileptics are demon-possessed. This is a misdiagnosis. He's been told this somewhere along the line that it's something medical. Could you heal him from the sickness that he has? And he says, it's not a sickness. It's a thing. It's an entity I'm going to have to deal with here. And so they've made the mistake. They made a misdiagnosis. And I wonder how often that happens today. How often is it a spiritual problem and they think it's a physical problem? How often do we throw a medication at it when actually it's something else entirely? An entity, something that's, you believe in entity? Absolutely. If we don't believe in demon possession or that we think that these things just don't happen, or this is some kind of uh, Greek mythology mixed in with the Bible, and we don't quite understand it, so we throw it out. I think you have a quiet time where the demons aren't doing everything they usually do until the Messiah actually shows up. I don't think they had any idea. I think when Jesus shows up on the scene the first time, I think demons are agitated. I think they're wild. I think they're crazed. I think they're scared to death. I think they don't understand it's a first coming. I think they think it's a second coming. It's not time for us to go to the abyss. What are you doing here? You're too soon, said the swine to the Messiah. Everybody's confused by this first coming because he came to save the world. We should not be confused today as we get closer to the second coming of Jesus Christ. They are fully aware of what's waiting them. They know the Bible better than we do. They are going to wreak havoc upon this world. And I think we saw a lot of it last summer. I think we saw a lot of that stuff happening. That was just people upset. People don't get that kind of upset. People don't act that way. People don't run over each other and trample each other for a pair of Nikes. They don't do those things. What we're, they don't just light stuff on fire. This is something else entirely, what we're seeing. But it's, it's liberalism versus conservatism. It's Republican versus Democrat. It's blue versus red. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. It's good versus evil. It's God versus Satan. It's demons being agitated to the point where they understand our time is short. We need to recognize it and identify it and call it like it is, or we're going to misidentify it and walk around saying, well, maybe this will take care of that problem. 
Maybe if we just offer them money, or maybe if we do this to them, and maybe if we give them this, or maybe if we do that, and we come up with all these worldly solutions, and we misidentify, just like he did, it's an epileptic. We need epilepsy treatment. No, no, no. There is that, and that is something that can be healed and touched, and Jesus can do all that, and that's a physical, real physical problem, but you've misidentified this. He keeps throwing himself into the fire and into the water. Epileptics don't choose where they're going to have a seizure. They don't choose those moments. They don't throw themselves into a place of destruction. I remember the first time I saw an epileptic seizure, we were in social studies class, and it was a young lady. And, uh, man, we had an excellent teacher. I can't remember his name. He was a coach, you know, and... uh, Probably shouldn't have been teaching. There's a lot of teachers that probably shouldn't be coaching. There's a lot of coaches that shouldn't be teachers. And he was in there. We didn't talk about everything about everything except social, except sociology. And all of a sudden, this girl starts to tip her head back. He goes, "Move the desk, move the desk, everybody." I'm like, "What are we?" We move the desk, and he comes over and grabs her by the head and lays her down because it's a hard tile floor back in the day. You know, there's no carpet. It's tile that you swept, and she just starts convulsing, and we're all watching. He goes, "It's going to be okay, honey." And just starts talking to her. This is the sweetest thing. This giant of a man, you know, just absolutely knew what was happening. And I'd never seen it before. I was like, oh, wow. That's Jan, you know. That's Jan. That's why, you know. Oh, she had this seizure, a real medical condition, you know. They don't choose when it's going to happen. They don't throw themselves into fires. They don't throw themselves in the water. This is something entirely, and Jesus recognizes it. The Holy Spirit will help us identify things properly if we're filled with the Spirit and we see things from a biblical perspective. We'll understand things. So important. Then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him here to me. That's a pretty heavy statement. I mean, he normally just heals people or casts demons out, but he's, he's rebuking everybody. At a, at a time when they thought he was just going to jump in and help. He takes a minute to say, before I do this, I mean, he doesn't say this out loud, but before I heal this boy, I want you to know something. You're a faithless and perverse, and that's an unbelieving, that's the word, unbelieving, if you look in your center column reference. An unbelieving generation. How long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him here to me. He's upset with them. He calls them out, not the dad, not the boy, it's his disciples. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the child was cured from that very hour. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast it out? That's who he's talking to, the ones that couldn't cast it out. They're in the second circle. Peter, James, and John, they've been busy. They've been up on the Mount of Transfiguration. The remaining nine have been down here trying to get rid of and heal this kid and couldn't do it. And so this man is waiting there with his son and says, these guys can't do anything. Could you do something about it? And we know that from other gospels that spells this out a little more clearly for us. So the disciples asked him, how come we couldn't do it? We've been able to do this stuff before. How come we couldn't do it this time? And Jesus said, because of your unbelief. It's your fault. I like that. I need to know when it's my fault. I like to blame everything on him. Well, Jesus didn't heal you. No, it's your fault. 
your unbelief, for assuredly I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will, be, it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. However, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. It's your spiritual condition, men, who are called upon by people that have needs, and because you're not prepared spiritually, you can't meet those needs because you're too lazy to pray and to fast. I'm talking to these nine. That's who he's talking to, the nine. I'm not trying to look at anybody in the room because I'm as guilty as any one of these nine here. But it's because you were too lazy to pray and to fast and to take the time to go a little bit deeper because this kind isn't as easy as the other ones. This was a harder one. You weren't prepared. You weren't ready. You weren't prayed up. You didn't fast. You didn't take the time. And this kid suffers because you didn't take the time. He's letting them own this. It's a big deal. It's the first time we've seen that, really. No, you own this, guys. How come we couldn't do it? Did we say the wrong words? No, you're just spiritually weak. Oh. <laughs> Thanks for <laughs> sugarcoating it for us. Well, here's the thing. The good news is there's an answer to your question. How come this kind didn't come out? Well, you can do better next time. It isn't just because you're a person and I'm Jesus. It's because you can pray and you can fast and you can become stronger, closer to the Lord, more in tune with what the Spirit's telling you. Maybe the whole time they're praying, God, please heal this kid from epilepsy. Please heal him from, is it? Not even the right prayer. You haven't even, you've misdiagnosed yourself. You haven't even got, you're, we're casting out a demon here. The demon's going, <laughs> really? Okay, I guess my name's epilepsy today. You hear that, guys? They call me epilepsy today, you know? They're mocking these guys. Somebody needed to step in and say, this is not a sickness. This is not that kind. Those are over there. Those guys on the mats will heal them later. This is a demon possession. They should have figured it out. They should have recognized his little faith. Misdiagnosis. James chapter 5, verses 13 through 15. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith, and that's the faith of the elders praying over the person. The person's already exercised their faith. They've come to the elder and said, I need you to pray for me. That's all their responsibility is. They do need to come to the elders. They do need to ask for the prayer. But the prayer of faith is the elders. And the prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he is committed sins, he will be forgiven. So pretty powerful stuff that God has given us. Verse 24, when they had come to Capernaum, those who received the temple tax came to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the temple tax? And he said, yes. Well, Peter doesn't know because then he goes up to Jesus and Jesus anticipating him says, what do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take customs or taxes? From their sons or from strangers? And Peter said, well, from strangers. And Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. Nevertheless, lest we offend them, go to the sea, cast in a hook, take the fish that comes up first, and when you've opened its mouth, you will find a piece of bunny. Take it and give it to them for me and you. Lesson, obviously. First of all, Peter's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. He gets, he gets caught off guard by this question, you know. 
Doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? He pays the temple tax. He doesn't know if he pays the temple tax. He just made the answer. He doesn't want to look stupid. Yeah, we pay the tax like everybody else. Jesus, do we pay the temple tax? You know? And Jesus anticipating, he says, no, because I'm the son. I mean, I made the temple. I told him how to build it. Of course, I don't pay the temple tax, but I understand. We don't want to offend him. So why don't you go just get one fish. Don't cast your net. Just go throw a line in. Pull it up. Open his mouth. There'll be a coin there. Piece of money. Take it and give it to him for me and you, Peter. I don't know what that's all about. I mean, you could probably do a whole Bible study on that. Just on that. Why? You know, why doesn't he pull it out of the money bag that they have? Why doesn't he pull it out of the dirt? Why does he have to go through all of those motions? And I don't know. I, God doesn't give me those kind of answers. I just, I just kind of get it. But, of course, I've got some cross-references we need to go over for this, because this is a big deal. This is a big deal. Um, in Romans chapter 14, verses 20 through 22, Jesus here in the scripture that we just read is very concerned about stumbling other people. I don't want to purposefully offend them. There are times to do that, which is what I'm going to show you in these cross-references, and there are times to not do that. I am of the opinion that I'm always in teaching mode, so if I see a legalist, I am more than happy to help them with their legalism. I just love helping legalists with legalism and bringing grace because I think they need to be delivered from it. I think they need to have that freedom that comes through grace and through mercy. I just like, but there are times when that's not appropriate. It's not appropriate for me to jump down their throat about legalism. You know, I, I, I joke around on every time we have, every time that Lent comes around. And for some reason, the Christians have all decided that we can't eat meat on Friday. I mean, there's absolutely no rhyme or reason to it, but they just all decided collectively no meat on Friday. In fact, you go to any restaurant and they have Lenten menus. For some reason, fish is not considered meat. Uh, so you can have fish, but you can't have red meat or pork or bacon or anything yummy. Um, so I always thought, well, on a Friday, why don't we just have free cheeseburger Fridays all through Lent here at Calvary Chapel? Because it just drives me. It just irks me. That's who I am. And then the guys come up and said, okay, but do we really need to do that? Do we really need to make everybody upset and worry everybody? I'm like, yeah, we do. No, we don't. It's not the time for that. And here's what Paul writes to the Romans. Because the Romans are Gentiles. And there's the Gentile Christians and there's the Jewish Christians. There aren't supposed to be, but there are. They're all saved in Jesus, but they've got their different hang-ups. Okay? So he writes to the Romans, Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. And I had to think that one through a little bit. Why not? <laughs> you know? I can't have a juicy steak in front of us because don't destroy the work of God. In other words, God is working in people. And just because you're irked by their hangups doesn't mean and give you the right to destroy the work that he's doing in someone else's life. All right. All things indeed are pure, but it is evil for the man who eats with offense. And he's going to clarify that in Corinthians, and I'll get to that cross-reference. In other words, some people just absolutely believe it's offensive to God to eat meat on Fridays during Lent. 
And because they love God and they want to honor God, and because they learned that and they know that and that's all they know, well, they're going to have the fish sandwich instead of the quarter pounder. And that makes them feel closer to God, and it makes them feel they're doing honor to God. Now, I'm mocking them in my heart, but God's like, no, you're not seeing what I'm seeing. They're trying. They're trying. They're, they're not eating meat for me. I didn't ask them to not eat meat. That was Bob that told them not to eat meat. But regardless, they're trying to honor me. Uh, okay. Can I honor you by telling them they're wrong? You know? <laughs> It is good neither to eat meat, nor drink wine, nor do anything by which your brother stumbles or is offended or is made weak. Do you have faith? Have it to yourself before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. You want to have a steak? Go home on a Friday and grill a steak privately. And yes, if the fumes waft over into your neighbors that are celebrating Lent, so be it. But you don't have to go around you know, chomping on the cheeseburger in front of them. Just have it to yourself. Feel free. But don't destroy the work I'm trying to do in them. All right. Now, 1 Corinthians 8. Now, concerning things offered to idols, Paul says to the Corinthian church, we know that we all have, we know that we all have knowledge. We know. But knowledge can puff us up. But love edifies. So there's a balance between knowing the truth and loving your neighbor. Okay. And just because you know better doesn't mean that you can, that you should hurt them, okay, with that knowledge. If anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing, yet as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. In other words, I don't care what you know and how much you know. I want to watch the love that you have for people. That's how I know you know God, not by the knowledge you have about God. There's a difference. There's nothing wrong with having knowledge and love, but you have to have love, which is what 1 Corinthians 13 is all about. I don't care what you can do in the spirit, speak in tongues, all these things, miracles, signs, wonders, you can give all your money away, that's great. If you don't have love first and do those things, then it's nothing. All those things are worthless. Okay. So Paul's trying to explain that to him. He's working his way up to 1 Corinthians 13. So in this chapter 8, but if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. Therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, in other words, they would go to the meat markets and there's a bunch of heathens in there and they worship all sorts of pagan gods. And this is the God of Zeus. And we've eaten, we've given half of this beef to Zeus and the other half has been blessed by Zeus. Would you like to buy Zeus meat? You know, it's like Angus back then, you know, this is really good Zeus meat here. Well, some of you guys like, and it's, it's on sale, you know, or whatever. Who knows? It's a great deal. I know it's Zeus meat, but I don't care. I don't believe in Zeus. I could eat it. Well, therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is no other God but one. There aren't any. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, you can see them in the marketplace, basically. Yet for us, there is one God, the Father of whom are all things, and we for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, uh, through whom all uh, are all things, and through him, or through, uh, through whom we live. However, even though we know all that, that there are all these other gods, however, there is not in everyone that knowledge. For some, with consciousness of the idol, until now, eat it as a thing offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. 
So he's saying, put yourself in their shoes. We know that. And they love God, the true and living God, but they're worried that there's a competition of gods out there because that's where they've come from. There's this God, that God, and that God, and I've chosen this God. For me to go eat that Zeus meat in my heart is a betrayal to the one I love because it looks like I'm committing spiritual adultery. And if I eat that Zeus meat, I know that's worship. And we're all like, no, it's just a good deal on meat. He's like, yeah, that's not how they see it. They see it as Zeus meat. And when they eat it, they're going to be like, I'm sorry. I'm, I just, it's really good meat, but I feel like they just feel terrible inside. You know? And so Paul's trying to teach them, look, you're just, I, yes, they're not right. They don't have the knowledge, but for now, don't worry about it. Let, let it, let it go. But food does not commend us to God. For neither if we eat are we better, nor if we do not eat are we the worse. But beware, lest somehow this liberty of yours becomes a stumbling block to those who are weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, <laughs> Zeus Cafe, and they see the pastor over there at Zeus Cafe, man, chowing down on Zeus meat, beware, you might stumble these guys. Will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to idols? Well, the pastor can eat Zeus meat. Maybe I should too. Oh, I just feel terrible. I feel so guilty, you know? So don't eat Zeus meat, he says. And because of your knowledge, shall the weaker brother perish for whom Christ died? But when you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. So he just throws that out there. Hey, if it bothers him, look, we don't have we have salad. It's Friday. I'm pulling up to McDonald's with my brother who's celebrating Lent. I don't need to get the cheeseburger and start mowing down on it saying, How's your fish? You know, your lame fish sandwich. Some of you like that's fine, but you don't need to do that. Just just get the fish too. It's all right. Now, when Peter had come to Antioch, this is a different scripture. This is where it switches gears. Because some of us are like, okay, so no meat? I mean, how do I know if I'm around somebody who, who's afraid to eat meat? I mean, I don't know, you know. I don't know if I can do that. Okay, Paul switches gears here. He's talking about people he knows know better. And they begin to become hypocritical. Now, when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even that Barnabas got carried away with their hypocrisy. Well, when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, if you being a Jew live in a manner of the Gentiles and not as Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? We who are Jews by nature are not sinners of the, are not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith. In Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. But if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves uh, also are found sinners. Is Christ therefore a minister of sin? Certainly not. For if I build again those things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. 
For I, through the law, died to the law that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness came through the law, then Christ died in vain. He said all of that to Peter in front of all of those people. That was one of those moments where he needed to say, look, I don't care if you offend the James gang from Jerusalem who are Jews but Christians and are offended that you're eating with the Gentiles. Offend them. Go ahead and offend them. You sit down with those Gentiles and you eat with them because they think they're still dirty, rotten scum, even though they're Christians, because you, Peter, won't eat with them because James's guys showed up. I mean, this is a big deal. And I get this, you know. And so now, as we step back from all these scriptures, we read them, we're like, okay, so when do I do it? When do I not do it? Mm, you got to pray. There comes a time when the knowledge has to be transferred from the person who knows it to the person who doesn't. There comes a moment, and I believe you'll know, and you'll only know by the Holy Spirit, it'll be a peaceful, beautiful exchange of information. It'll be a wonderful time. It will not be an in-your-face cheeseburger dripping down your face moment. It'll be a moment where, look, can I show you in scripture what it says about this so that you understand why I have the freedom to eat this and why I have the freedom to do this? It's not because I just feel like it or because I'm a wishy-washy Christian, but because I have scripture to stand upon. And let me show that to you. It's a whole different moment. It's a loving attitude. That's the key. The transfer of information that Paul's talking about here comes from love for the other person. I want you to be able to eat Zeus meat too, you know, kind of thing, and not be worried about it. I want you to understand why it's okay to eat Zeus meat, because there ain't no Zeus. None of that stuff's true. It's all garbage. We're not in competition. The devil and God aren't fighting. The devil is a peon compared to the Lord. The Lord is over all. And we live in this, and he has to submit to the... So you take that time to share with them and teach them. It's a loving thing to do. It won't be a big confrontational moment like that. And finally, um, mm, I'm long. Um, Acts 16, 1 through 4, you can read it on your own. It's another cross-reference. Galatians 2, verses 2 through 4. That's another cross-reference, and that's my last one. We don't need to read those. It really just builds upon what I just said. Okay, so read those on your own if you need more confirmation about when to talk to someone about, in love, the truth and freedom and grace and mercy and liberty and when not to do it because God's doing a work and they're not at that place yet, so this is not the time to have that conversation. Okay, and let's pray. We'll close. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the time we've had in it. Thank you for this chapter. And... uh, We appreciate Jesus' heart and concern for each person where they are. Some, like the Pharisees and the Sadducees, needed to be called out with their hypocrisy. Um, Some that had weak faith, guys in leadership that were counted on to bring ministry to people and weren't able to, he called them out on that. And yet, the guy asking for the temple tax, he had compassion on and says, just go give him the money. We don't want to offend him. There's a work in progress there. We don't want him to not come to know me for who I am because we didn't pay this tax. Just pay it. Lord, help us to know the difference. Give us wisdom. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. We want to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves in this world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
If you need prayer before you go, please come on up. Um, be glad to pray with you before you leave. Otherwise, have a good rest of the night.